Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, it's Michael Adams and Set Up the Truth, One Man's Journey to Violence. And it's November 26, 2015. Happy Thanksgiving to all. I hope you had a good one. Uh, mine was uneventful, and uh, that's okay with me. We will be doing part three uh, in memory of David McGowan, where it seems inside the canyon. Might be having a guest on Saturday. Working it out right now. If it is, it'd be Dave Weiss. You could, he has the website deepinsidetherabbithole.com. And so, um, he has some interesting insights. He's not a Christian. But uh, regardless of that, he has very good insights on uh, many of the hoaxes that are going on in the 9-11 and um, Flat Earth and a lot of other conspiracies. So we can learn from everyone. Hopefully he will come on. He sounds like he's a pretty uh, receptive person, willing to um, at least share his time. Um, so let's see what happens there. It was a request from Walt Stickle to reach out to him. I think Walt would like to talk to him as well about 9-11 and how the buildings turned to dust and etc. What actually happened on 9-11? Before we get going and reading some of um, Dave McGowan's work, as we know, he passed away this week on the 22nd. And uh, so I figure, you know, we spent a few shows, at least um, in remembrance of him, some of his work. Well, we'll start with Yahoo.com and look at some of the headlines. It looks like here, headline number one, UFOologist, is that how you pronounce it? I don't know if you pronounce that one right. Uh, claims that he spotted a giant, gigantic Martian rodent in Curiosity's rover footage. <clears throat> BGR News footage. And of course, this is all just mockery on us. The uh, Department of Energy confirms a massive fuel source. Money, morning, whatever it's worth. U.S. Department of Energy confirms the existence of a massive supply of viable free fuel, all unlocked by a start of the discovery, whatever that is. Uh, CNN, of course, uh, Pope Francis urges religious unity. You know, the ecumenical movements as they try to create their one world kingdom of God on earth. 
in which he will reign as the Pontif- Pontifus Maximus. Um, yes, uh, no surprise there. El Salvadorian Church suspends priests in sex abuse case. El Salvador's Roman Catholic Church announced Thursday it suspended a well-known priest saying he acknowledged sexual abusing. <clears throat> Nessus's mysterious star is uh, likely surrounded by comets. <laughs> they got their computer-generated imagery. Let's go back to this. Um... Student in Ohio State, Lake Chump probably died from broken that. Hmm. Let's see. Let's see what the El Salvador priest suspended, saying he acknowledged the abuse of young girl, seventy-seven. Year old Delgado is known affectionately as Father Cus, C H U S, familiar from the name Jesus, Father Jesus. Huh? He has written two books about Rome, Romero, who was gunned down by right wing death squad in March 24th of 1980. Well, quote, if he did this to kids, he should be punished and kicked out of the church and put in jail. Uh, Melendez. Agree, but then who knows? With all the politics to go on in, in the church, who the heck knows? One thing is for certain, an awful lot of people, even in my own hometown, thousands, have come forward, it looks like it. Not at least hundreds, probably more thousands. Um, how about, you know, being sexually abused by priests? And then here we got a picture of this uh, Mars. If there's one thing I can't, I cannot imagine doing is obsessively combing over footage being backed to Earth from NASA's Curiosity Rover and search for the signs of Martian life, no matter how ridiculous they may seem. However, there's an entire cult of people on the internet that spend their days doing just that. And on one of them, they spotted what they say is a gigantic mouse on the surface of the red planet. And there we go. And why is that? Because it's not on the red planet. They filmed it on this Earth, and they're getting caught left and right with the lies and deception of NASA, which is just simply the scrambling of Satan. Quite tragic. <clears throat> so I think that gives us a kind of a good a glimpse of a little bit of what they're saying. And um, all the other garbage that comes out of the mainstream media. Neil deGrasse Tyson says it's a delusion that SpaceX will lead the space frontier. Of course it will be, because you can't go. 
got a picture there like some giant trail wise eating a Dorito. <laughs> Interesting photoshopped image. Pope arrival generates buzz in struggling Kenya. Well, certainly we live in a weird we don't live in a weird time, we live in the same old, same old time. Okay. Well before we get into the reading of um Uh, the weird scenes. We will uh, read part two of Cheney's Got a Gun. This was a suggestion by uh, Gordon Comstock. He's real busy these days. Uh, so I don't know when he'll ever be back on the show. Hopefully soon. I certainly enjoy talking to him. He's been real busy right now. He's just been too busy to talk, apparently. <clears throat> Aspects. A Vice President Dick Cheney's quail hunt makes ethical hunters and hunter safety instructors cringe. Span this just a little bit so you can see it's a little, just a little bit better. Okay. From reports, we know that this hunting party consisted of three hunters and thus three guns. This is highly unusual and generally seen as unsafe, nearly every hunting preserve I know here in the southeast restricts um, upland bird hunt parties to two guns. For obvious reasons, one hunter takes the left side and one takes the right side. There is generally a dog and a guide, a dog handler, who is very careful to stay behind the guns after the dogs go on point. Reports say that the hunters were hunting by what's this is, by car, too old and too feeble to walk, too, or, or too lazy. <laughs> the upland bird hunt by car is an offensive idea in any honest ethical hunter. Um, this sounds like irresponsible cruising for easy shooting rather than the time-honored tradition of slowly walking the fields and brushes, watching the dogs work, and if you're lucky, finding a covey or two of quail. The idea of hunting from a car is bad. It's dangerous because hunters would be getting in and out and guns pointing every uh, every which way, losing track of the wind and weather and angles of the sun and energy level of the dogs. Hunting from a car is for able for able-bodied hunters at least completely empty ethical to honest and antithetical to honest ethical hunting. One of the cardinal rules of any bird hunt, don't shoot low birds. Why? It is more difficult to see birds against the ground than against the sky. It is possible that something besides a bird might be on the ground. Thus, in the way, generally, this would be the dog. 
as a hunter and a conservationist, I feel uh, misrepresented by Cheney and his ilk. They portrayed hunting as a sport for the rich carried out on the vast private lands where pulling the trigger takes priority over everything else. www.charlotte.com MLD slash observer slash news slash opinion slash 138611 Quail hunting for years has been called the sport of aristocracy. Quail hunting is a gentleman's game and is often a spectator and a participator sport. At the same time, most quail hunts involve a pair of dogs and a pair of hunters in the field. At the same time, each dog is competing to see which one can locate a covey of uh, quail first. Once one of the dogs zeroes in on his quarry, he will freeze on point. The other dog is trained to honor the pointing dog by actually freezing and pointing at pointing that dog. Okay, and pointing that dog. Okay. This is what the excitement builds in anticipation of an explosion of whirling wings known as a covey flush. An awareness of all of the gunner's responsibilities and locations of each prior to the flush is an absolute necessity. Strict gun discipline is required. While wind conditions and proximity of escape cover for the flushing birds may alter what I am about to say. As a rule of thumb, the hunters should approach their dogs from behind the dogs. The gun muzzles should be oriented skyward, and the shotgun needs to remain on safety until mounted to one's shoulder. Two hunters should approach the dogs, one at either side, and in a straight line with one another. This straight line is very important for the safety of each hunter. Prior to moving on up and allowing the birds to flush, each hunter should visibly and uh, mentally locate each other, both dogs, the hunting rig and the hunting guide, if on a guided hunt, each hunter should know in advance where he can and cannot swing the muzzle of his gun to follow an escaping quail. Each hunter's range of gun swing should be from the midpoint between him and his partner and out of his, out of his side. He should never cross the midpoint to shoot at a quail flying on his partner's side. 
not only is this poor sh- uh, shotgunning adequate, adequate, yeah, etiquette, excuse me, it is dangerous. Additionally, and quail hunter sh- should never take a shot at a low-flying quail that would cause him to lower his muzzle of his shotgun below the horizontal plane with the ground. Taking a shot at a low-flying quail has ended the life of many fine pointing dogs since the inception of this great sport. If each hunter places safety and sportsmanship at a much higher priority than actually pulling a trigger, quail hunting is truly a unique hunting experience. This is one from the article once again, and it's from uh, sources www.riverviewplantation.com slash quail hunting tips slash quail hunting tips. The first quote above is from an op-ed piece that was published by the Charlotte Observer in response to Cheney's shooting incident. The second is from the website of the, quote, Riverview Plantation, end quote, a private hunting reserve in Georgia that, quote, specializes in quail hunting for the corporate account, end quote. In other words, it is a place not unlike the Armstrong Ranch in the South Texas. Well, the above quote reads very much like a commentary on Cheney's shooting, a condemnation of Cheney's stated actions is actually, is actually, it actually is not. In an attempt to prompt some direct commentary on the incident, I sent an email inquiry to the owners of the plantation. I am still waiting for the response. I forgot to ask them, by the way, if they would consider hunting with Dick Cheney a good, quote, spectator sport, end quote. (laughs) One of the most amazing things about this case is that even if we accept without question the tale told by Cheney and Armstrong, if we accept that this quote, accident, end quote, occurred exactly as they have told it happened, it is perfectly obvious that the uh, the, uh, consensus media opinion that there was no misconduct or negligence is simply untrue. By his own account, Cheney was hunting by vehicle, a decidedly unsafe, unethical practice. By his own account, he was out in a three-man hunting party. By his own account, he had made two efforts uh, to ascertain the whereabouts of anyone else in his party before firing away. By his own account, he was firing at a bird that would have had to have been flying ridiculously low. By his own account, he swung his gun far beyond, quote, the midpoint, end quote, to take his shot. By his own account, he had been drinking that day, undoubtedly far more than his he had admitted to. By his own account, he was hunting in the flat terrain 
with a party that included a hostess, two other hunters, several guides, and outriggers, or outriders, I guess this was supposed to be outriggers. I don't know about outriders. I guess this was those outriders, scouts on horseback, uh, medical team, uh, secret service team, and yet he swung his gun around blindly a full 180 degrees to take a shot at an alleged bird that was supposedly flying just a few feet off the ground. By his own account, Cheney's actions were, without question, criminally reckless, and yet, remarkably enough, the media machine has beat a hasty retreat from the story, implying that there, there is really nothing left to talk about. Every gun enthusiast organization in the country, including the Venerable National Rifle Association, knows full well not only that Cheney's story cannot possibly be true, but that even if it were true, it would expose Cheney as a recklessly irresponsible gunman who certainly should be held accountable for his actions. All these groups, nevertheless, have chosen to put their partisan knee-jerk politics ahead of any sort of search for the truth of what happened that day. Cheney and company have insulted the intelligence of every responsible hunter and sports, sports shooter in the country, and yet the groups representing the, these gun owners have conspicuously conspicuously chosen to remain silent. As previously discussed, there are unanswered questions about both the angle of the shot and the distance between the shooter and the victim. In addition, there is yet another problem with the official story, a problem that no one in the media, to my knowledge, has yet commented upon. This problem was brought to my attention by Mr. Lester Gregg, Jr., a conscientious hunter from East Texas with more than 35 years' experience commenting on Cheney's claim that he was tracking a bird in flight as he swung his weapon around. Greg had this to say. It says, when taking a shot, a, a wing shot, you are swinging a barrel and leading the bird. This causes the shot to form a, quote, string, end quote, roughly a long, narrow oval in the air. The almost circular shot pattern reported on Whittington is typical of a stationary shot, point, and shoot. This is very important fact, completely overlooked and misrepresented by the media the CA, on CNN. CNN, I heard a person from Field and Stream Magazine glossing over the details and never remarking on this. There is no way he could not know this simple fact known by hunters and shooters. So now we have at least three major problems with the official story. The angle of the shot is entirely inconsistent with accepted quail hunting practices. The tightness and pattern and the depth of the penetrations are, penetration are 
incompatible with the stated shooting distance and the outline of the shot pattern is not consistent with Cheney's claimed quote, wing shot, end quote. And yet another problem with the official story was raised by the Charlotte Observer, which posed the following question, quote, why was the hunter, Harry Winnington, looking for a down bird? Where there, where there no, were there no dogs? A quail hunter without a dog Absurd. If there were dogs, why not have them go after the dead bird? A perfectly reasonable question, but one which Brett Hume, good old Brit, didn't bother to ask. Scott Dinham, quote, Cheney ignored safety hunting procedures, end quote, Charlotte Observer, February 14, 2006, excuse me. By Cheney's account... There were indeed dogs along on the hunt. Quote, there were three of us who had gotten out of the vehicle and walked up to a covey of quail that had been pointed by the dogs. Covey is flushed. We shoot. Each of us get got a bird. Harry couldn't find his. It had gone down in some deep cover. And so he went off to look for it. The other hunter and I turned and walked about 100 yards in another direction, away from him, where another covey had been spotted by an outrider. This is uh, from N, excuse me, msnbc.msn.com. According to... Uh, was in quote, by the way. And according to the published account, in addition to the guide and the outriders, the hunting party also brought along hired help to dress and pack their down birds. In other words, these gentlemen hunters' participation in the hunt involved little more than pulling the trigger. Though they were too lazy to actually walk the terrain in search of prey, or to perform such menial tasks as dressing their own kills, we are supposed to believe that gentleman hunter Harry Whittington, at nearly 79 years of age, ventured off alone into some rough terrain in search of his down bird while the dogs and various hired hands busied themselves, I presume, this with dodging wild shots taken by Dick Cheney. Can you imagine? I can. Have we heard of stories of uh, the nobility in Europe uh, actually um, hunting peasants for sport on a daily basis? I'm going to look into that one. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that Winnington really did venture off to fetch his own kill. That would, at last, rise yet another problem with the official story, according to the Cheney-slash-Rose-slash-Armstrong version of events. Cheney was unaware of Winnington's position because Harry had been approaching Dick. 
shouldn't there be a Tom in the story? <laughs> Tom, Dick, and Harry. <laughs> Thrown behind unannounced, leaving aside the fact that it would have clearly been Cheney's responsibility to know Whittington's position prior to taking his shot, since even a novice hunter knows that you never, ever pull the trigger without knowing exactly what is in your line of fire. There is an obvious problem with the scenario. This was not, you see, your run-of-the-mill hunting party. This was a hunting party that included Dick Cheney, Vice President of the United States, and possibly the most well-guarded man on the planet. Though only the World Socialist website seems to have noticed... It is simply inconceivable that someone with a loaded shotgun could walk up behind the vice president without Cheney and his security personnel being aware of it, and if Winton was close enough to catch a full load of bird shots in his chest and face, then he was obviously close enough to deliver one as well, and normally Cheney's army of security personnel keep tabs and such things. The Charlotte Observer alone among the media took note of yet another troubling aspect of the official story. Quote, Cheney shot Winnington at 5.15 p.m. on Saturday, 5.30 p.m. according to official reports. Way too late to be hunting quail. Good hunters hunt early in the day when the light is good, the birds are active and the dogs are fresh. One should generally not be out for quail this late in the day. Scott Denham, uh, quote, Cheney ignored safety hunting procedures, end quote, Charlotte Observer, February 14th, 2006. Another... Well, you want to dance with the devil, I guess that's what you get, huh? Don't dance with the devil, man. Yet another curious fact, this incident occurred very late in the hunting season, and as any hunter knows, locating and flushing coveys of birds becomes progressively more difficult as the season wears on, as the population of birds is reduced and the remaining quill becomes savvy to the ways of the hunters pursuing them. Flushing two coveys in rapid succession so late in the season and so late in the afternoon would be extremely unlikely, and yet that is exactly what the official story claims to be the case. Proceeding, the preceding paragraph it should be noted, would not apply to Cheney's party, was shooting at Penray's quail on a controlled release hunt, as he has done in the past, but Cheney claimed otherwise during his chat with Hume, stressing that they had been hunting, quote, 
wild quail, end quote. Of course, that could be just another of Dick Cheney's numerous lies, one he constructed, so as to avoid the same sort of uh, mild criticism he has received in the past for his participation in what amounts to turkey shoots. I got a picture here of uh, Winnington with all the holes in his face. Ah, well, there's some problem. <laughs> Here's yet another curious fact. According to all reports, Whittington was pur- purportedly wearing hunting gear at the time of the shooting, but if dif- but it's difficult to believe that he actually was, according to Cheney, Whittington, quote, was wearing hunting glasses and that protected his eyes, but during Whittington's brief media appearance, it clearly appears as though he, his eyes, uh, so it appears that his right eye, excuse me, had sustained damage from the shot. Reports also hold that Whittington was wearing a blaze orange hunting vest over three layers of street clothes. But it is difficult to believe that number seven and a half birch shot fired from a 28-gauge gun could penetrate four layers of clothing and still plow through a considerable amount of skin, muscle, and various other bodily tissues even from a much shorter distance than 30 yards. It should be noted here that as shotguns go, a 28-gauge gun is not a peculiarly powerful, particularly, excuse me, powerful gun. Most, The most popular shotgun sizes and descending order of magnitude are the 10-gauge, and then the 12-gauge, and the 16-gauge, and then the 20-gauge, and then the 28-gauge, and then the 4-10-gauge. None of these guns, and particularly the smaller caliber weapons, which are typically loaded with lightweight birdshot, are designed for maximum penetration. The, the intent is not to shed or shred the bird, but to bring it down with a minimal amount of damage to the meat. It is, therefore, extremely unlikely that a weapon designed to barely penetrate the flesh of a bird could propel bird shot through four layers of clothing and then through the skin, muscle, and bones uh, of a human chest wall. It is even more unlikely that a piece of shot could migrate through the chest wall and into the heart muscle. A reasonable conclusion to draw draw then is that Whittington was probably not attired as reports would have us believe. So what do we have here? We have Harry Whittington supposedly being shot while returning from performing a duty that is entirely incompatible with the aristocratic group's hunting philosophy 
we have a shot pattern that is wholly incompatible with both the alleged shooting distance and the type of gun or type of shot, excuse me, that was supposedly being taken a wing shot. We have a shot a shooting angle that appears to contradict the notion that Cheney was shooting at a bird. We have a hunting party having phenomenal luck despite being out late in the day and late in the season. And we have a shooting victim who was likely attired in some manner other than what has been reported. Most of the questions surrounding the shooting would have been answered had a routine investigation taken place. We would know, for example, the exact distance between the shooter and the victim. Had the gun and ammunition been taken into custody, ballistic tests could have been performed that could pinpoint the distance through comparisons of the test patterns with the actual shot pattern imprinted on Whittington's torso. And we know that taking such actions as standard procedure, and we know that because the hunting accident report form advises official officers quite explicitly on how to proceed with a hunting incident investigation. And we will read this in a moment here to check things. Good. There we go. Here's what it says in the hunt report. If possible, firearms, archery, tackle, um, ammunition, slash powder, or other equipment involved in the hunting accident, slash incident, should be taken into the custody of the investigating officer for testing and or evaluation. Needless to say, that did not happen, so we do not know the precise distance from which the shot was fired. We know that Whittington was hit with as many as 200 birdshot pellets. Netra Peckler, quote, experts Cheney violated cardinal rule of hunting, end quote, Charlotte Observer, February 14, 2006. Doctors who tended to Whittington steadfastly avoided discussing the number of pellets, pellet wounds, though they did not ultimately offer a ludicrously vague, or they did, not not, they did ultimately offer a ludicrously vague estimate of, quote, between five to 200 shots, leading many to conclude that the actual number was far closer to 200 than to five. We also know that a 28-gauge shell loaded with that the size bird shot that Cheney was using, quote, would normally contain about 260 pellets, end quote. And Urbina, quote, Cheney account, questioned, end quote, International Herald Tribune, February 16th, 2006. 
2006. And we know from the diagram included in the accident report that roughly 200 of those bird shot pellets were tightly clustered within a fairly small, roughly circular area with one portion of the circle missing from which we can deduce that the 25% or so of the pellets that missed their target likely passed over Whittington's right shoulder, though the illustration in the accident report erroneously shows injuries on his left side. We also know from this photo and others that Cheney appears to favor a shotgun with a fairly short barrel and likely with an open choke as well. The more open the choke, the larger the diameter at the end of the barrel, and we know that the shorter the barrel and the more open the choke, the more quickly the shot will uh, scatter after exiting the barrel. Now we know why it's maybe, is that why Biden was in Gisela-Dashaka? From all this, we've reached the inescapable conclusion that the shot that hit Harry Whittington was fired from considerably less than 30 yards. We cannot pinpoint the exact distance, but we know that it wasn't even close to the official claim. Alex Jones, who is not of my preferred sources of information, has conducted a test that he claims proves the shot was fired from 15 to 18 feet away. Such a claim, however, overstates the conditions that can be drawn from his test. Ideally, the test should be utilized, should utilize with, should utilize the very same gun and ammunition, ammunition that Cheney was using, or at least the exact same make and model the weapon outfitting with a barrel of the same length and choke and loaded with ammunition from the same manufacturer and with the same load and shot characteristics. Also photographic or other evidence of the true extent of the Whittington's wounds is required so that the shot pattern that the test is trying to match can first be ascertained. <clears throat> Despite the problems with the test and the fairness of Jones, there is obviously no way that he could have satisfied the second condition since no such evidence has been or ever will be released. It does illustrate rather convincingly that it is inconceivable that any 28-gauge shotgun firing number seven and a half bird shot from anywhere near 30 yards away could have caused Harry Whittington's wounds. But the concentration of pellets and the depth of the penetrations testifies to the fact that the shot was fired from a much closer distance. Another Another hard and fast conclusion we can draw from the and available evidence is that contrary to media reports and White House spin hunting, quote, 
accidents, in the quote, of this nature are virtually unheard of, according to the graphic uh, to the right provided by Time magazine. There were only 850 hunting accidents throughout the country in 2002, and only 26 of those, a mere 3%, involved quail hunting. So, that's a lot of hunting accidents. So, we know that quail hunting accidents, in general, are quite rare. And this was not run-of-the-mill quail hunting accidents. The Charlotte Observer has claimed that, quote, hunting accidents like Cheney's happened 34 times last year, end quote, in the state of Wisconsin. Robert Emery, quote, hunting accidents like Cheney's happened 34 times last year, end quote, in Charlotte Observer, February 13, 2006. The title of the Observer article, however, is very misleading. For the truth is that it is extremely unlikely that there were any hunting accidents, quote, like Cheney's, in the quote, last year in Wisconsin or in any of the other 49 states. Of the three representative examples of, quote, accidents like Cheney, in the quote, cited in the Observer, none bears the slightest resemblance to Cheney's incidents. James Mansky for example, was hit in the hand with, quote, one pellet that traveled three inches into the meaty part of his hand, end quote. Well, Gregory Horton, quote, was wounded in the hand, arm, and nose, and head from eight 12-gauge shotgun pellets while pheasant hunting, end quote. And John Crosby, or excuse me, Joe Crosby, quote, struck his father in the head, neck, and chest, and shoulders, end quote, with 15 pellets. These are the types of accidents that, while statistically not nearly as common as the White House spin team would have just believe, could reasonably be expected to occur from time to time, but there is, alas, an erroneous difference excuse me, an enormous difference between getting sprayed with a few pieces of stray shot and getting blasted in the face and chest from short range within nearly a full load of shots. That type of act, quote, unquote, quote, accident, end quote, we can safely conclude is an exceptionally rare event enough so that should such an, quote, accident, end quote, occur, it would, under virtually any other conceivable circumstances, certainly be looked upon by law enforcement officials as a probable crime. <clears throat> in the case, however, authorities, or excuse me, in this case, the, however, authorities did not even bother to pretend that they had any intentions of investigating the incident. As a quick read through the two-page Texas Park and Wildlife Report readily reveals, the instructions to investigating officers includes right on the form were willfully ignored. The weapon and ammunition, as previously noted, 
were not seized for examination or, or, testify, or testing. A recommendation that a, quote, copy of the local law enforcement slash hospital report, quote, be attached to the form was likewise ignored. Other attachments are curiously absent as well, including a, quote, shooter's statement, end quote, a, quote, victim's statement, end quote, and, quote, witness, quote, uh, witness statement, end quote, supplied by one or only, by the one and only witness listed on the form, Catherine Armstrong of Armstrong, Texas, an old town named after her family. Shooter, the shooter, uh, Robert, excuse me, not Robert, let me get over Richard B. <laughs> Richard B. Cheney was obviously a witness to the event as well, but uh, it appears quite likely that he was actually. He was not actually interviewed. In a brief section of the report reserved for information about the shooter, quote, years hunting experience, in the quote, is left blank, and, quote, hunter education certified, in the quote, is marked unknown. Also, such mundane information could have been quickly and easily gathered had the shooter actually been even briefly questioned. The Kennedy County Sheriff Department also made no effort to actually investigate the shooting, and the department seems to have a little trouble keeping its story straight, initially offering varying versions of the initial law enforcement response to the shooting. Sheriff Raymond Salinas, or Salinas, the third first told the New York Times the New York Times that he had that his deputies had questioned Cheney Saturday night, not long after the shooting, but other reports held that the deputy responding to reports of the shooting had in fact been turned away at the gates of the property. I wasn't even aware that I apparently have an option of turning away investigating officers shooting should a shooting ever occur on my property is the LAPD aware of this secret service agents later claimed that they had promptly notified the sheriff of the shooting and had at the time arranged an interview with Cheney for Sunday morning. Uh, I guess this is Salinas. Then the third, of course, Salinas. Salinas. I mean, that's how you pronounce it, Salinas. Then quickly changed his story and claimed that he had made the decision not to send a deputy on Saturday night, but on February 14th, the Washington Post reported the following, quote, Secret Service spokesman Eric Zarin, Zarin, or Zarin said at least one deputy was turned away shortly after the shooting. 
because security personnel at the ranch were not aware of the agreement between the sheriff and the, the Secret Service. That statement, it should be noted, was more than a little bizarre given that the turning away of law enforcement personnel only makes sense if the, quote, security personnel, end quote, were aware of the supposed agreement and had relayed that information to the investigating officer. This is from MediaMatters.org. Next day, Saren added a few more modifications to the story, telling the New York Times that, quote, some local police officers had heard about the shooting on a scanner when an ambulance was sent to pick up Mr. Whittington. They showed up at the ranch unsolicited. Private guards, not Secret Service agents, Mr. Zaran said, turned the, the police away because they did not know anything had occurred, in a quote. So now it was private security guards turning away police officers rather than Secret Service agents turning away sheriff deputies. With the added caveat that the officers learned of the shooting independently when an ambulance was dispatched. That's a nice story, I suppose, except for the fact that Cheney has claimed that the hunting party did not need to call an ambulance since they already, quote, had an ambulance at the ranch. Because one follows me around wherever I go, end of quote. And then, of course, there is the decently dubious claim, or decidedly, not decently, decidedly dubious claim that the real cops would defer to the authority of the rent-a-cop. Sheriff Salinas' uh, final report on the incident issued on February 15th offers yet another version of events. On February the 11th, 2006, at approximately 5.30 p.m., I, Raymond Salinas III, Sheriff of the Kennedy County received a telephone call at my home from Captain Charles Kirk. <laughs> Captain Kirk. <laughs> In reference to a possible hunting accident that had occurred at Armstrong Ranch in Armstrong, Texas. Captain Kirk. Stated that he was uh, he was on his way to Armstrong Gate to get more information. About eight to ten minutes later, I received another call from the United States Secret Service agent. I believe his name was Martinez. He said the, the purpose of the call was to officially notify the Kennedy County Sheriff's Office of a honey accident. That had just occurred on the Armstrong branch, and that it involved Vice President Cheney. After I hung up, Captain Kirk called me back and said that he'd made contact with 
a Border Patrol agent at Armstrong Gate and that the agent told him that he didn't know anything about the accident. I then told Captain Kirk that it was fine and that I would contact someone on the ranch. After speaking to Captain Kirk, I contacted Constable R- Romero Med- uh, Medellin, Medellin Jr., former sheriff of Kennedy County, and asked him if he had any information about the accident. Constable Medellin stated that he would call me right back. Constable, Constable, I didn't know they had constables in this country. I didn't know that. They must have it down south. I didn't, maybe they have constables here too. I remember in England, uh, that's what they called the constables and bobbies and all that. I don't, I don't remember in American constables, but and it just shows how ignorant I am. Constable Medellin returned my call and said, quote, this is fact. This, in fact, is an accident. In the quote, he stated that he had spoken with some of the people in the hunting party who were eyewitnesses and that they all said it was definitely a hunting accident. And I also spoke with another eyewitness, and he said the same thing, that it was an accident. After hearing the same information from eyewitnesses and Constable Medellin, it was at this time that I decided to send my chief deputy first thing Sunday morning to interview the vice president and other witnesses. A few minutes later, I received another call from the Secret Service asking if I was going to send someone to the ranch, and I told him that someone would be there first thing in the morning. Secret Service said they would be at the gate waiting. At approximately 6.15 p.m., I I contacted Chief Deputy San Miguel and advised him of the incident and to be at the gate at approximately... 8 a.m. www.caller2.com 2006. There is certainly no shortage of irregularities in the sheriff's brief, poorly written report. First of all, we now find that Salinis was first informed of the shooting. And I couldn't make this stuff up if I wanted to, folks, by Captain Kirk. The phone call from Kirk to Selena's, I guess that's how you pronounce it, I don't know how you pronounce it, came in at 5.30 p.m., which just happened to be the exact time Winnington was shot. According to the official accounts, so what happened was that Winnington was shot, his wounds were tended to at the scene, an ambulance wasn't summons, even though there was already one there, which Captain Kirk picked up on via a scanner, after which he headed out towards the ranch while phoning Selena's and all of that happened, of course, instantly, so that Selena's actually knew about the shooting the very second the shot was fired. 
At 5.40 p.m., just 10 minutes after the shooting was fired, the Secret Service agent had already contacted Salinas to again inform him of the shooting, but Salinas didn't bother to note the agent's name because when someone calls a calls to report a shooting involving the vice president of the United States, it's not really important to make a note of who that person is. Immediately after that call, Captain Kirk called back to say that he had arrived at the Armstrong Gate where he encountered not a Secret Service agent, not a private security officer, but rather a border patrol agent who was, I'm guessing, patrolling the borders of the Armstrong Ranch. That agent did not, however, turn Captain Kirk away. As previously reported, instead, Kirk was called off by Sheriff Salinas who then called Constable Medellin to see if he just happened to have any information on the shooting that had taken place just minutes before. Constable Medellin then promptly called back to confidently inform Salinas that, quote, this, in fact, is an accident, end of quote, even though nobody that I have ever known actually talks like that, and even though Constable Medellin couldn't possibly have known the details of the shooting less than a half an hour after it had taken place, nevertheless, he boldly claimed that he claimed to have spoken to multiple eyewitnesses, and Salinas added that he had also spoken to an eyewitness, though none of these alleged witnesses are named undoubtedly because they don't actually exist. And, okay, blah, 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 blah. By 6.15 p.m., just 45 minutes after the shot was fired, and while the hunting party was still focused on tending to Whittington, according to Cheney's account, and uh, yet concerned with notifying authorities or the media, both the sheriff and the constable had spoken to multiple witnesses and were satisfied that this was nothing more than a routine hunting accident. And they had remarkably enough talked to all of the witnesses a full 45 minutes before the hunting party even had made it back to the house. That, I have to say, is some pretty impressive police work. You can find this on daysweb.cnchost.com. Also, um, weird scenes inside the canyon. There is a Facebook page, and also on thinkoperbeaten.com, there is a page dedicated to Dave. And this has been stated now several times this week on the show. Dave died. He 
passed away on the 22nd of this month. Clearly one of the most impressive and insightful reporter slash journalist slash book writers probably of our generation. Maybe he's right as far as Mashu and his statements there. Thinkofrebeat.com What is fascinating at all with all this is um how the wicked seem to get away with what they get away with. So we will be reading part three on the next show, but we will now get into a little bit of uh, insight. We're seeing inside the canyon. Now, can you imagine finding any kind of article, report, and investigative journalism like this in any newspaper, any of your alternative scene uh, mags, rags on the internet? Did you even find it from me? The truth of the matter is no. That's the truth. Oh, we need more men like Dave. We have eyes to see and ears to hear. You know, he was the man who believed in God. He was burnt by the Roman Catholic Church and his experience with the hypocrisy. Still, God blessed him with an amazing ability to see. To read in between the lines. And he will be missed. So next time we'll read the part three of this. But in the meantime, we'll get into the weird scenes inside the canyon and read a little bit more of that uh, where I left off. I believe it was, um, if I have this right, hopefully I marked it right. I mean, so much things going on. Chapter 8, Helter Skelter and the Summer Swelter, Return of the Deathless. And where we left off was on the page, what here. 110 or 11, but we'll just return, repeat some of what I read. Hopefully, because quite frankly, it's worth it. And we see here, um, maybe we should, uh, let's see, how far am I into that? Let me pages. Huh. Maybe for continuity, maybe I should just read it all again. I should take a break. I've been doing this for an hour and 20 minutes. I've got to take a little break and just chat about it a little bit. So. And then we'll go back and we'll just read Helter Skelter all the way through it. Again, Chapter 10. Uh, we have read previously uh, Part 1, uh, Village of the Dan. Part, this is Chapter 1, uh, Part 1, of, in memory of David McGowan, a village of the damned by way of introduction. We also read uh, the preface. 
Also, we read, uh, I believe it was chapter 2. I don't know if we actually, did we get into chapter 3 yet? Uh, I don't think so. And as I said earlier, if we go bouncing around, we won't be reading the whole book, because I would like to encourage you guys to actually buy the book. If you haven't already, uh, you can go to thinkwordbeat.com, and then you can go to Kate. Dave's site, website, um, Center uh, for Informed America, um, or you can just uh, davesweb.cnchost.com. And, um, quite frankly, I think it's worth your time. Um, also, if, as far as the weirder scenes, I think you can still probably get something through his Facebook page. I have no idea how to go about getting a book from now. It might have to go through Amazon, so definitely it's worth your time to get his books and getting them on the shelf uh, before it's uh, too late. And uh, His work is memory hold like so many other things. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about a little bit today and listening to the guys over at Globe Busters. <laughs> the interesting interview they were having that was recommended to by uh, Walt Stickle to I don't know if he actually meant me to actually read it, but he was talking about or listen to it. Uh, but I did anyways try to in the meantime, trying to be a father on Thanksgiving and try to do all the many other things. And it was a bit of a challenge, but the one thing I was, was thinking about oh, I was <clears throat> impressed with has their realization of how um, this George Orwellian <clears throat> doublespeak and uh, <clears throat> I can't even remember what it's called now. There's some things on my mind, but uh, how they rewrite our language, basically. And you know what? It's it's literally uh, it's not like on a generational basis at this point. It's literally um, in a yearly basis. And you see words and being changed, the, the, the spelling being changed, the, uh, the twisting of language. Now, thinking about this and realizing that probably George Orwell already knew that this was going on long before the future, but in his own present time, and most likely the past, and it makes one wonder about history, whether the mainstream media or not, or even just mainstream religion, uh, business, um, commerce, corporations, just the way they change language, the uh, public school system, the, the uh, university system. You know, changing of dates. It was a fast, fascinating is uh, date setting and how our calendar today was nothing even close to even a thousand years ago. Heck, even six hundred years ago. So, so, so when somebody says it was written in four hundred A.D., you have to question even the date because whether it's that's true or wreck. You know, first of all, what calendar? Was it really written during that day or that year? 
It's so easy to manipulate information that you uh, you uh, come across in the written word, even the spoken word. It's so easy through language to um, frickin' lie. That's what it comes down to. And so even as someone who has become interested in myself, and sorry about the wind, right with you again. It's warm, though. It's like 60 degrees, which four or five days ago, heck, two, three days ago, it was like 18 degrees. Of course, you've been spraying the heck out of the sky the past three days. It has something to do with it. I imagine it does. All the potash, mm-hmm. and global dimming. Then uh, again, you know, every year is a little different. So, but then, the thing of the matter is, is uh, when it comes to um, how rare it is to get any kind of uh, really reliable information from anybody, and uh, including myself, you know what I mean? It's really quite. Disturbing. To realize how um, easy it is to change dates, to change uh, meaning sentences, to change uh, things. We put so much faith in our knowledge of um, what was written in the past and how accurate it was. And... um, Really, we always have to, in the back of our minds, ask ourselves the question, do we really know that? Now they'll say, well, you know, you know, cross-reference and compare and that kind of thing. But uh, It's very hard these days, probably always, to get uh, the absolute truth about much of anything. We can only do our best and try to understand the patchwork information that we we glean from the books we read, uh, the interviews that we listen to, or the videos we watch. It's so easy to be manipulated. It's quite tragic, really. So, anyways, what's great about what Dave has done um, is that he's... uh, Basically, his way of researching is he just uh, went to, this is the best he could, to first and sources, and which basically is the mainstream media, and he had the ability to read between the lines and Chris to critique it and to critically think and to see the inconsistencies. I find that fascinating that a guy who's made a living being a carpenter was more able to be a journalist than those who go to school to become one and have a life, a living, quote-unquote, doing it. It just just got more confirmation that as uh, you can learn from... uh, and you can go to thethinkerbebeaten.com. You can listen to Gordo's uh, work, uh, reading um, or listening to, excuse me, the Lords of the Press. 
And even if you can just uh, get through some of it, it's long, it's quite a few parts to it, but uh, it's worth your time. It was the moment that really changed my thinking four years ago. By listening to that, I dawned on me that there's a high probability that I had been lied to about everything, so I started really going down a lot of rabbit holes and really questioning what I'm what I've been taught. And as you go down the many rabbit holes, you discover that well, you know, there's a whole bunch of lies. Oh, thank you, guess who? Newspeak was the paring down of the language I mentioned. Is that you, Gordo? Yes, Gordo, Gordo. Of course it would be. Double think it was here we go. So this is what guess who has to correct me in my thinking here. Uh thank you very much, by the way. Uh Newspeak was the paring down of language to limit thought. Doublespeak was holding two simultaneously contradictory thoughts, believing they are both true. And certainly hasn't that been the case in our lives if we're really honest, if we can find it in ourselves, the capacity to look in the mirror and realize that's our thinking process. And that is how we have been educated and brave new world has been here for quite a while i'm i'm getting really convinced that a lot of the although you know it's been a little bit you know it's been quite a bit in the fiction from uh George Orwell, he really was talking not only just about the future, but his own present and the past. He knew what was going on. He knew that this has been a necessary part of the ruling elite to constantly propagate, spin tales, lies, change language. It was fascinating the degree and speed in which all languages, written or not, change. Uh, it's not just uh, it's even faster than a generational change although you can see it clearly in the writing of books like maybe the Black's Laws uh, law books or the um, dictionary books from the past and what they are today Um, it has always been going on and so it's very it, it it begs the question, how much do we really know about our past? How much of the past really is accurate? What was it really like a thousand years ago on what we call planet Earth? How much do we really know? I think it's pretty safe to say we know very little. I can understand this, this simple working man as I was most of my life, why not even to pursue or go down this road because of the frustrations that it poses, the challenges that it poses, and the frustration that it is in trying to understand the world. But until one really looks at religion, and particularly the papacy in Rome and the Roman Empire, you cannot fully have a... Even, you can't even go down the right path of understanding, so... Saying that, it's on a limited understanding. I'm going to start from the beginning of uh, Chapter 10, Help of the, once again, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon by David McGowan. Uh, 
although I've read the first two pages just up for as uh, Tom Fress would say for continuity purposes I'm going to start over again so. Helter Skelter in the summer swelter return of the dead the deathless quote everybody was experiencing and taking it all away it opened up a negative force of energy that almost that was almost demonic. Frank Mazula, editor of the film Performance. It is now sad to say time to add some more names to the ever growing Laurel Canyon death list. The first new name is Mr. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who purportedly drowned without assistance in his home swimming pool on July 3rd, of course, 1969. At the age of 27, Jim Morrison would allegedly die precisely two years later. Also at the Ripple at age 27, just three days after Jones. I, I put I added that, sorry, the ribald age. <laughs> sorry, I'm hard to time not doing that. So, just three days after Jones' tragic death, the Stones, with the Hell's Angel providing security, or angels providing security, played a, played a previously scheduled concert in Hyde Park of which appears in Kenneth Anger's Invocation of My Demon Brother. Despite being the founder of the Stones and being widely regarded as the main creative force within the band, Joan had been unceremoniously dumped by the group on June the 9th, less than a month before his death. He was replaced just four days later by Mick Taylor, who in turn was later replaced by Ron Wood. It would later be claimed that Jones was booted from the band due to his chronic substance abuse problem, although Keith Richard, legendary drug intake never seemed to pose a problem for the group. The Rolling Stones were not, to be sure, a Laurel Canyon band, but they did spend a considerable amount of time there, and they were very closely tied to the scene. As Barney Hoskins, or Hoskins writes in Hotel California, quote, in the summer of 1968, the English band was flirting heavily with Satanism and the occult and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. And the quote. A lot of time, that is, in and around Laurel Canyon, and during that time, Mick Jagger was involved in two occult-drenched Crowley-influenced film projects, Keith Anger's Lucifer Rising, and Donald... Kamel's performance. Jagger was the first musical superstar tapped by Anger to compose a soundtrack for his Lucifer Rising project, which at the time was 
Two Star, uh, Mansonite Bobby, but uh, I never see Basoli. Basoli. <laughs> I like the University Basoli or something like that. I will eventually figure out his name to go on. So I don't know why I can't. Well, I know why. My tongue, and my brain are not working right. So anger would later solicit a soundtrack for the long-delayed film project from Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, proud owner of one of the world's largest collection of Aleister Crowley memorabilia, memorabilia, including Crowley's notorious Volskin estate. And I don't know if I'm sorry. I wonder if it's Volskini. Anyways, it's B-O-L-E. S-K-I-N-E, estate on the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness. When ultimately released, however, the film featured a soundtrack by neither Jagger nor Page, but rather one that was composed, recorded, and arranged inside a prison cell by convicted murderer Bobby Busoli. I'm not saying his name yet. I'm sorry for that, folks. I just... Bob Sully. Bob Sully? Bob Sully. Thank you, Cordo. <laughs> you should be reading this. <laughs> no, you're busy doing your own thing. You've already done your fair share. So, But thanks for correcting me. The footage that Anger had shot of Basule, meanwhile, ended up in a different film and the aforementioned invocation of my demon brother, co-starring in Lucifer Rising as Osiris, was performance writer and co-director Donald uh, Seaton Kamal, who happened to be a good friend of Roman Polanski. Wasn't he a well-known pedophile? Something like that. I don't know. Kamel, who some described as a master manipulator, was the son of Char, uh, Charles Richard Kamel, who happened to be a close friend and biographer of the notorious occultist Alistair Crowley. Donald himself was, or at least claimed to be, Crowley's godson. Kamel's Decidedly, Crowley, uh, Crowleyian film was originally to star his good friend Marlo Brando, but the role ultimately went to actor James Fox. Brando and Kamel did, however, find time to write a novel together. Speaking of Brando, he somehow found himself at the center of a curious string of deaths that began on May 16th. 1990, when Marlon's son, Christian, gunned down Dag Drolet, his the father of his sister, Cheyenne, unborn child. Uh, Marlon's Laurel Canyon adjacent home, though convicted, Christian got off with a rather light sentence, thanks primarily to Marlon, having 
had his own daughter, the prosecution's potential star witness locked away in a mental institution to keep he safe from subpoena. A few years later, on April 14th, 1995, 25-year-old Cheyenne was found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death, unsurprisingly, ruled a suicide. The next year, Christian Brando was released from prison and promptly became involved with a woman by the name of Bonnie Lee Bakley, who caught a bullet to the head on May 4th, 2001, while in the company of a new hubby, Robert Blake, her 10th husband. Marlon dropped dead next in July 1st, 2004, though his death wasn't particularly shocking given that he was getting on in years. His home was promptly purchased by good friend and neighbor Jack Nicholson, who immediately announced plans to bulldoze it, declaring the structure to be decrepit. He never did, though, explain why a man wealthy enough to own his own Polynesian island was reportedly living in a derelict home. A few years later, on January 26, 2008, Christian Brando dropped dead at the relatively young age of 49. Returning now, after that brief digression, to our discussion of Donald Camel's performance, we find that Mick Jagger was cast to play the role of Turner, a debauched drunk star, which obviously was a real stretch for Mick. James Fox played Chaz, a violent organized crime figure. He was trained for the role by David Litvinoff, a real-life crime figure and associate of uh, the notorious satanic, or sadistic, excuse me, Craig Brothers. Litvinoff reportedly sent Fox to the south of London for a couple months to hang out with his gangster buddies, when he returned, according to various accounts, Fox had literally become, literally become the violent character he portrayed in the film. After completing work on the project, Fox reportedly suffered a massive nervous breakdown, supposed his acting career, excuse me, supposed, suspended his acting career and withdrew from public view over a decade. Recruited to create the film soundtrack was Bernard Elfert, Jack Nietzsche, an occultist and son of the supposed medium Nietzsche. I guess that's your pronounce his name. I read Nietzsche, or just like the off the, um, the the philosopher, poets, Luciferian. Germans, the Nazis loved him, um, along with Sonny Bono, had begun his music career as a lieutenant for the gun-brandishing producer, Phil Spector. He was one of the architects of Spector's fame, quote, wall of sound, and to quote, he was also familiar, a familiar presence 
on the Laurel Canyon scene, collaborating with such notable bands and artists as Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Randy Newman, Michael Phelps or Phillips, the Turtles, Captain Beefheart, <laughs> Carol King, David Blue, Ricky Nelson, and Tim Buckley. Michi's performance soundtrack was composed according to author Michael Walker, quote, in a witch's cottage in the canyon. I'm not exactly sure what a witch's cottage, did I say that wrong? In a witch's cottage in the canyon. I'm not exactly sure what a witch's cottage is, but it's nice to know that Laurel Canyon had one. One of the musicians hired by Nietzsche to play on the soundtrack was Lowell George, who we will also be adding to the Laurel Canyon death list. For now, let's add Donald Kamel to the list since on April the 24th, 1996, he became yet another of the characters in the story to catch a bullet to the head and yet another to allegedly die by his own hand. David Litvinoff, performances director of Authenticity, reportedly also committed suicide. Nietzsche died of a heart attack on August 25, 2000, a few years earlier, he had made an appearance on primetime television as a gun-brandishing drunkard arrested on the street of Hollywood on cops. The next name on the death list was Steve um, Brandt, who was a close friend of both John Phillips and one of the victims at... 10050 Sheila Drive. Brent allegedly overdosed on barbiturates in late November of 1969, some three and a half months after the Manson murders. In the days and weeks following those murders, Brent had placed numerous phone calls to the LAPD. Those calls became increasingly frantic. In nature, and Brandt became increasingly fearful for that his own life might be in jeopardy. He soon decided to put some distance between himself and L.A., so he headed to New York City. On the night of his death, according to Phillips' autobiography, Brandt attended a Rolling Stone concert at Madison Square Garden where he attempted to run on stage, but was repelled and beaten by a security guard. He then went home and, according to official mythology, overdosed. It seems obvious that if someone had information that desperately needed to be made public, and if it was the kind of information that authorities had, say, willfully failed to act upon, and if the information was of the type that could not be taken, to the mainstream media, and if the year was 1969 and the mass communication technology that we now take for granted did not exist, then grabbing the mic at a Stones concert 
at Madison, Madison Square Garden might just be one of the most effective means of disseminating that information. Brandt failed in what may have been an attempt to do just that. He turned up dead just hours later. Next up is David Blue, another of the forgotten talents of Laurel Canyon. Blue was born Stuart David Cohen. On February 16th, 1941. Ozelay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know how to say his name. I said it before, and I've heard it numerous times, not only from Dave, um, but others. Ozelay, and I just, for some reason, couldn't put it together. Well, I know why, because I'm, I'm defective tool in the shed, that's why. <laughs> Anyways, where were we at for this? Okay. After that, his father was deployed overseas. Did we get through over that? Okay, okay. So we're talking about David Cohen. Uh, he was born on February 18, 1941, shortly. Thereafter, his father was deployed overseas, according to David. His dad, quote, coming, came hobbling home on crutches and stayed depressed all his life. Not unlike, it seems fair to say, the family situation of our old friend, I guess this is Phil Oaks. That's O-C-H-S. So we see Pox, Oaks, Oaks, something like that, Orchard, Oaks, Oaks, let's say Oaks. David and his slightly older half-sister, Susan, endured a hellish existence consisting of Alternating periods of rage and silence, Susan got her out first, only to end up busted for prostitution in New York City. In 1963, Susan next stopped. Just a few months later, was at the county morgue. And I'm like, as I mentioned in the last show, I can relate to this completely. I understand why my sister would end up uh, gravitating to um, what she did, you know? and trying to escape the house existence and escaping the home along with my brother. And if there's consolation and all that, at least she didn't turn out to be a whore. She but she, she ended up... Uh, I don't want to say so I won't get into it. But Anyways, I, I did celebrate Thanksgiving at her house. And she doesn't know how to take me. But I understand where she's coming from a lot more than I did before. So, Actually, I have a lot more compassion for my uh, siblings. It's a really disturbed and really bizarre situation, but we make the most of it, don't we? We find our ways of coping. For me, it's my faith and belief in Jesus Christ and uh, doing this and raising my son and... You know, doing what I can, so as unimpressive as it is. so That's okay. At least I have uh, peace. I really do. I don't really worry about the world and what's going on. I enjoy learning all this stuff, and it really doesn't bother me like it used to a few years ago when I was really uh, quite disturbed about learning about the reality of the world that I'm in. I'm more at peace with it. 
I guess the next step in all this is learning how to live in the world again, knowing all this stuff and knowing that everyone else is on a different path altogether and that they really don't have any interest in what I'm doing. Anyways, back to this. So Dave, meanwhile, had gotten out of the house as well by dropping out of school and joining the U.S. Navy at the age of 17. It sounds like a couple of my uncles. Just as Lenny Bruce had done, and like Jimi Hendrix, Blue was purportedly booted out of the service, after which he decided to become a folk singer. His first album was released in 1966, of course, and later, a later effort was produced by Graham Nash, who also has previously noted produced a record for the forgotten talent Judy Sill, with whom Blue had much in common. Like Sill, David Blue was one of the Laurel Canyon stars who never quite shone as brightly as they should have. And also, like Sill, Blue was one of the first few acts signed by David Giffen's Giffen's fledgling asylum label. Finally, as with Judy, David was long forgotten by the time of his death on December 2nd, 1982, when the 41-year-old Blue dropped dead while jogging in New York's Washington Square Park the former rising store and occasional actor lay in the morgue for three days after anyone noticed that he was missing. I wonder if that will be my fate. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that's probably what it will be. Next on the list was Ricky Nelson, who, like Brandon DeWild, Kenneth Anger, Mickey Dold, uh Dolans and Van Dyke Parks began his Hollywood career as a child actor who, excuse me, he was the son, as everyone surely knows, of American favorites, America's favorite 1950s TV mom and dad, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson. Ricky began his rock and roll career in 1957 when he was just 17. By 1962, he has scored a few, no fewer than 30 top 40 hits, trailing only superstar Elvis Presley and Pat Boone. Speaking of Elvis, he arrived in L.A. in 1956 to begin what would prove to be a prolific film career that would continue throughout the 60s and would result in an inexhaustible creation of nearly three dozen motion pictures in the early years of his film career. Elvis reportedly spent his off hours hanging out with his two best Hollywood pals, a couple of young roommates and Kenyanites named Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams. If I'm mistaken, wasn't Nick Adams a homosexual, a bisexual? Didn't he have some kind of gay relations? Later on, this, I just add that, and I'm not sure, but I just what I've read in articles. So. In later years, Presley backing a musician considered to be among the best session musicians in the business 
where the high demand, where high demand in Laurel Canyon crowd. Elvis bass player, for example, can be heard on some of the Doors tracks. That makes sense. The entire band was recruited by, quote, Papa and the quote, John Phillips to play on his less than a memorable solo project. Mickey Nesmith critically acclaimed post-monkey project the first national band featured Presley band as well. Graham Parson also hired Elvis, Elvis's band to back him up on the two soul albums he recorded at were proved, but proved to be the twilight of his life and career. Those two solo efforts by Parson, by the way, prominently featured the voice of a young singer guitarist named uh, Emilio Harris, a relatively late arrival to the Canyon scene. Harris was the daughter. Brace yourself here for a real shocker, folks, of a career Marine Corporal (laughs) Corps officer. As with so many other characters in this story, she grew up in the outlying suburbs of Washington, D.C. Isn't that interesting? And you're still here with me. Gordo, you remember the punk scene, the hardcore punk scene in the 1980s and how that actually came out in the Washington, D.C. and guys like... But I'm mistaken, even uh, Henry Rollins grew up there, didn't he, supposedly? These guys that I ended up playing with in my teen years in high school at the Cypress Lounge, like government issue, minor threat, and everything, they all came from the Washington, D.C., um... Scene. I don't know if it has any connection at all, although it's pretty suspect to me. Yeah, a lot of guys, a lot of bands, man. The Descendants were also some of the bands that came out of Washington, D.C. And it actually is purported that Toledo is going to be like the next Athens. Of course, I don't know how many other towns and cities have got the same kind of write-up. And it's probably was understandable. We had a guy named John Stainbrook from the Stain who ends up being, you know, here's this guy, this real quote-unquote progressive punker, real liberal guy. He ends up heading the Republican Party in the, in the Toledo the stain and John Stainberg was really instrumental amazingly and uh, really bring a lot of these these bands into Toledo and of course that's a natural jump to uh, DC right and Columbus and Cleveland and Chicago so it was a natural place for a lot of these uh, punk bands to go so it was an interesting experience for me being Toledo and that kind of like crosshairs of the Great Lakes region's, you know, punk scene and um, guys like Iggy Pop. Uh, uh, who else from this? I want to say Meyer Thrip, but that's not it. Dag uh, Nasty came out of there. Of course, that would be, um, oh gosh, 
Gone in 67. What's the other one that, that's really popular that everyone wears? The Misfits. The Misfits. Um, so it was really quite a scene for itself. Um, and um, we were part of that and um, all these empty promises that everybody gets. But the one thing that uh, Dirk Hemsath, who was the lead singer of the band that I was in, called The Majority of One, um, and of course, started uh, Doghouse Records. You know, become a millionaire, going to, to New York. And uh, his father was notorious. He did a bunch of Germans, and we all joked and called him a Nazi because he was a Nazi. <laughs> he was a flat-out Nazi, and he had some amazing connections. For Dirk, um, he didn't hide it. He was a flat-out Nazi. It was the first time I ever experienced, and maybe the only time I really personally had that kind of experience where we would practice and hang out in a self-professed Nazi um, in Toledo, you know, and I had, you know, it didn't register to me at the time as a kid, you know what I mean? I just, you know, your attitude as well. Different strokes for different folks. But looking back at it now, with there's connections and with some really whacked out producer, which I can't remember his name, in Ann Arbor that promised all these things. If you said, well, this is the, but this is the conditions. You guys got to become a neo-Nazi punk band, some kind of the counter, the Nazi uh, portion, you know, as you know, uh, the punk thing at the time, right? It was really heavy. It was really big going on, especially in the, in the Great Lakes. So, And they signed him up and all that, and he ended up, Dirk ended up becoming a millionaire through the whole process because of his connections. He was an absolutely worthless musician and even a worse songwriter, but because of his connections, I was the guy that actually wrote the music. And somehow in all that bizarre experience, uh, a friend of the family ended up... I, now the producer, I, it doesn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense. We'll look back at it now. But the producer of Devo comes showing up, knocking on my door and convincing me that a good idea to disband the band and for me to get out of there and just get rid of Dirk and everybody else and go a different direction. And he said he'd produce us. Well, needless to say, it was pretty disheartening and I was young and not really in a position to be the band leader of it in any way, shape, or form, and, um, you know, and I ended up taking a, one, a one-way bus ticket to California, and my life went a different direction, and all the other guys went in their direction, and, uh, but they guys, they ended up producing a few albums, and, uh, you know, opening up for the guys like Henry Rollins, his band, not Black Flag, by then, the Black Blade, I don't think it had, had completely been dismissed. I think, didn't, didn't a guy from the member from the Black Flag die? Um, didn't one of them die from a drug overdose or alcohol or something like that? I think the punk group called Scream came out of D.C. is mostly notable because of the guitarist. Their guitarist was Dave Rowe. Later was Nirvana, yeah, the drummer, and then Foo Fighters, yeah, the songs. Yeah, Dave Grohl's totally connected, man. Call Satan is on top of it, man. Talented guys all get out, but he's 
a lot of bad things, man. Even Henry Rollins turns out that guy's a flat-out Satanist, too. I wouldn't be surprised that Henry Rollins, the guy that probably killed the... It wasn't, wasn't one of the guitar players, the guitar player or the drummer. Somebody died from Black Flag. Yeah, maybe it's the singer. Maybe it's one of the original singers that died. But um, something happened. Drug abuse, to go with it. It's like war or something. I can't remember now. So many things. You know, it's such a time. It was an interesting time. I had a really kind of a weird, unique a unique experience um, for a, uh, a Toledo win and a Slovenian night who was a guy that was raised a Mormon. And, you know, at the time, my you know, Majority One was a straight-edge punk band. That was our kind of our thing, you know, no drugs, no all that kind of stuff. And it kind of made sense because our rhythm guitar player, Ali Mahazid, was, you know, obviously a Muslim. And, uh, you know, none of us were really into it. We saw a lot of the consequences and things that were going on with all the drugs and alcohol and our friends and all that. So we kind of, we, although all of us in the end... <laughs> end up becoming one that one way or the other later on life but and I know the guys the man in the scene did not like us Henry Owens hated us uh, I know that uh, like the guys government issue and minor threat and all that thought were a bunch of poofters because we weren't hip to the scene if you will you know what I mean it was all about the music and um, for us I mean, we weren't any good at all, but who was, you know? Well, as we they moved on and things changed, you know, you got good. Good enough, you know what I mean? You, got, you find a good enough drummer and a good and get a new bass player and all that kind of stuff. They ended up being all right. And now they ended up becoming kind of just a part. And he ended up becoming working for the... <laughs> I remember seeing him later in life and... Um, and I was in the environmental consulting field, and uh, how um, he was working for the EPA, and I would see him at meetings and conferences. You know, I was just a field grunt, but uh, just a grunt. And I would go to these things anyways because I was real interested. And that was what I was going to do. And how he never could see the corruption that was going on in the environmental consulting fields and the EPA, and still got there. I don't think I could think of it is because he. Because he got a full ride scholarship and a good paying job, he wasn't going to abandon that. Real womanizer, man. And to this day, he still thinks he's the greatest, thinks the Swiss cheese is really weird. <laughs> he didn't grow up. Still, to this day, almost 50 years old, and he's still obsessed about, you know, putting another notch in his belt when it comes to women, you know what I mean? Bagging them. So. But Dirk ended up becoming supposedly a millionaire. And I imagine a lot of that was helpful to do to his connections because he is a terrible, as far as music goes. Um, but I imagine he learned the business side and how to run a business thanks to the family and connections and ended up in New York and producing some of the more well-known um, kind of uh, mainstream punk bands, kind of like the wannabe Green Day bands and that kind of stuff. Made a lot of money off that. Um, everybody else went their own way. Todd, the guitar player. We ended up being a, a band again called River, River Men. 
for a little bit. It was a, a Grateful Dead cover band. I couldn't stand it. But Todd, he got into uh, restoring Volkswagens and buses. And then he moved on. Ollie became a big wig in the, like I said, in the EPA. And then there's me. The drummer, I always wonder about the drummer, man. He's just wonderfully, you know, that's one thing about uh, uh, the punk scene, especially in the 80s. Uh, a lot of really good drummers, because it was absolutely necessary, because no one could play more than three chords, you had to get a good drummer, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, the Circle Jerks, I remember those guys. I think I actually saw them. Were they, did he really play for the did he sing for the Circle Jerks? Really? Wait a minute. Uh, one of the Circle Jerks is like an English band? Didn't he come like early? I thought I saw them. I can't remember. I could, I, I gotta go back in time. I, it's man. I mean, when when I cut away from it, when I, I I cut away. You know what I mean? I don't know how you are, but when I'm done, I'm done. So <laughs> I move on to the next thing. So, but I, if I'm not mistaken, I saw the Circle Jerks when I was living in England. Believe it or not, if it wasn't them, yeah, it had to be them, and. Uh, I remember I got sucked up in the mosh pit and I was wearing my glasses and man, some big English guy, huge guy, a mountain guy, probably six three, elbowed me right in the face and shattered my glasses. And I had to go like two weeks without wearing my glasses and I'm pretty much by that time I something happened. It was really weird. The mayor's son, Cheney, not Cheney, but my small pin Cheney. His son were down at the creek and he threw a big old frickin' rock in my head when I was like 11 or 12 and something hit with my eyesight. That kid was a psychopath. I'm sure he's making a lot of money. Anyway, so I always had weird experiences and, and runs with uh, with political people that ended up being kind of a um having that kind of obscure jobs like politicians and all that. I mean, I'm nobody. I'm a guy that just grew up in a blue-collar family, but yet we still end up having these kind of interactions. I have no idea. I think it's probably because of the music and the art type of thing, you know? But if I'm not mistaken, the Circle Jerks, I saw them in England. And I thought, didn't they get kind of, they got really whacked out, man. Those guys got really really into being the rock star thing. So. <clears throat> oh, the days when you were young and didn't know any better. Now I look back and say, you know what? Especially looking at how that process really works. And uh, I'll, You mean a lot of the guys are sick, man. Sick people, man. I was a sick person. Talented, but sick as all get out. Spiritually, didn't know God. A lot, of, a lot of corpses along the way, man. A lot of corpses. Don't miss it one bit. Now, I do kind of miss just doing the... I wish there were more coffee houses in my area, but they seem to have... At least the, the, um, <clears throat> the folks that run the show around here, they just don't like coffee houses and our tea shops. So there's very few of them, but uh, I always like to go and just picking up my acoustic guitar and just playing scales and just making up stuff. It's been a long time, you know, that's how I coped with the insanity of my life for a couple decades was writing music. 
And so that's what I did. You know, I got really good. And all those guys, you know, hey, let's write a song. Okay, here we go. You know, I was really, you know, I got really was not interested in playing other people's music, but I was really good writing songs, I believe. And I uh, could pound them out. It was really, and weirdly enough, I did it on the bass guitar mostly because it's just for some reason that's what I gravitated to. But as time went on, and I moved away from bands and started playing acoustic guitar, and I just uh, really enjoyed that. And uh, I never was meant to be in a band. I think there was musicians, there's performers, there's some musicians who are performers, even some musicians are performers and good songwriters. But for me, I was more of a songwriter and uh, not really much of a performer and not at all really into being a band member. You, you know what I mean? I was never into the whole... I always thought it was the goofiest thing that ever was being in bands and the, the whole front men thing and the whole... I just thought that was just so generic and so... I mean, you look back at uh, the whole music scene and how it's all been constructed. It's one of the most conformist, militant, unbending systems that uh, we've ever created to indoctrinate and mind control the masses and in particular the musicians the, music, the musicians themselves uh, talk about being a bunch of conformists and here was I you know I started out in the punk scene in the late 80s you know the hardcore punk scene you think well it's the only thing out there that's really supposedly progressive and it's really rebelling against the man and the scene and everything that's going on, music and art, and it was further from the truth. I mean, it was, and I mean, if you tried to be truly individualistic and trying to do your own thing, you weren't really, and I'm telling you, you know, there's, 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 there was the scene, the hardcore scene with, you know, as I mentioned, some of the big, the big hitters, the heavy hitters, you know, by the names and the experience, you know, and there's a lot of other guys who's just, uh, you know, just being in a punk band, you know what I mean? And playing at bars here and there once in a while and just writing. Never ever get a chance to even play with guys like Minor Threat or, um, you know, et cetera. Henry Rollins or um, The Misfits, and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? You did them, it's never going to happen. They're just going to have the little... You know, they're playing people's garages and they're going to play in little dives here and there. And that's cool in itself. But even in that situation, it's all the same thing. It was all about uh, the look, the attitude, the presentation, being part of the group. And I just never was about that at all, man. So, you know, if I going to play a show and, you know, I knew it was going to be you know, a bunch of, I mean, <laughs> gosh, like the government issue, those guys were a rough group of guys, man. You could tell they hadn't had a bath in months. At least they didn't try to, they tried to make themselves look that way. And, uh, you know, I show up in a preppy shirt in LA just to mock the whole thing because it was like, you know what? This is stupid. <laughs> it really is stupid. You know? I mean, everyone's, we're all supposed to be rebelling against the, this, disgusting, whacked-out system that we live under, and we're just doing the same thing. The only thing that's different is people had spiked here and cussed a lot. 
some acted intellectually, you know, and uh, but outside of that, it was just a bunch of horse. <laughs> Thank you. Guess four is that? I don't know which four. Which are you? Uh, we already know that we've been going with that. We uh, do. Dealing with that, uh, is that you, Michelle? Or is it, who is that? Who are you guests for? Because we've been doing this in memory of Dave for the past three or four. Oh, it's Andrew. Well, thanks, Andrew. We that's why we've been doing this and reading the book and all that because of memory. That's why I call it in memory of Dave because we know. Is that, didn't I tell you that? Or are you trying to tell guests to that? Because that's Gordo, and Gordo already knows that as well. So, anyways, uh, ever heard of the punk group Zero Boys from Indianapolis? Or uh, I think I know about the effigies. Zero Boys, I'm not quite sure of. You know, if, if the, the amount of bands that were out there, did, did you ever think about? It? I mean, and they had all these. You know, everyone had made these like because back then we're talking late eighties. It wasn't uh, CDs. Is just prior to the CDs, just, people were just starting to make albums. They were still making vinyl albums, and and uh, everybody was like making these compilation uh, CD or not CDs, cassette tapes. And um, so probably do. Just trying to remember. I mean, I remember the use. I mean, it, it was. Uh, <laughs> The strew of bands, man, and one thing that Dirk was really good at, and this is probably the reason why he ended up starting his own record label, is because he was good at tracking all these bands down. He's really good at it. And he would give us, like, like, oh, hey, check out this compilation uh, tape. And, man, he would have, like, all sorts of bands, and I can't even think of half of them. I can't think of half of them, because they, they all sounded the same, to be honest with you. <laughs> I have to look into that zero boys and the effigies. I remember that one. I remember we used to we played a couple times in Chicago. That was weird, man. We'd hang out at the park there in Chicago, and we always end up in the right the red light district. I remember one night I ended up. I think I was with my little brother when we had to go get about. We had to go to Chicago to get passports at the time. <clears throat> but anyways, but that was weird, man. Women coming up to you in the, in the car and flashing their their boobies at you. It's weird, man. It's a weird. It, it is a weird world, man. It, you know what? As bad as jobs are, life is, and all that. Get, you know, at least we're sheltered from the majority of the insanity that really is out there. Anyway, so let's get back to this. So we were talking about. Um, Uh, the Parsons or at the time, right? We're talking about Parsons and his two solo efforts. And in 72, during the Parsons and Harris were recording and performing together, the cult uh, columnist Jack Anderson revealed that experiments to control human behavior with science fiction devices are being conducted secretly at the Army Height Fenced Harry Diamond Laboratories in Washington. Ultimately, human guinea pigs will be used to test devices. Although the classified memorandum in our hands specifies tests are for riot and civil dis uh, disturbances control, the memo admits 
that general purpose is a short time span control of human behavior. It sounds as though uh, Emma Lou Harris probably fit right in the rest of the Laurel Canyon. I probably missed a little bit there. So. Shocker, we talked about Corey Davis. So Emma Lou, Emma Lou Harris was uh, the offspring of a, a career U.S. Marine Corps officer. Then, of course, was, oh, yeah, that's right. With that, we got to get started because she was, uh, grew up in an outlying suburb of Washington, D.C., primarily, or in Woodbridge, Virginia, of course, which happens to be the home of an imposing large military research and development installation known as Harry Diamond Laboratory Woodbridge, Woodbridge Research Facility. And if I'm not mistaken, I have to get back to uh, my buddy, Eric, who came on the show, he just came out of prison. I believe he went to Woodbridge Prison, man, who got railroad big time, man. Man, he got big. You careful and freaking who you're messing with, man. You really you know what? You really need to look into your significant other's background because you really get in a lot of trouble. This I know for certain. But here, I seem to have digressed from our discussion of Elvis, which was, if I remember correctly, itself a digression from our discussion of Ricky Nelson, given, though, that he had only peripheral connections to Lower Canyon, I guess I don't really have much more to say about Elvis other than that he reportedly died in August 16, 1977, a victim of drug overdose, at the young age of 42, as with Morrison, however, there have been persistent rumors that Elvis didn't actually die at all, but rather reinvented himself to escape from the fishbowl. And one, uh, by the way, just this first, a very interesting thing to research, folks, is Operation Fishbowl. If you have not done it yet, I would spend a little bit of time watching the videos and some uh, the, looking into that from the 1950s, and it might blow your mind. Just might. All right, where were we at? Okay, he didn't actually die at all, but rather was reinventing himself to escape the fishbowl. Also, it was Morrison. Elvis apparently had a keen interest, keen interest in occult particularly the writings of Madame Lovosky. Of course they would, and it's find out over and over again and over and over again and over and over again that all those at the top of the music scene are the same. They're all into this Luciferianism, witchcraft, and Satanism, whatever. It's all the same package. It's all the same thing, just packaged a little different. And I really believe at this point it's really just about corrupting your minds. It's the reason why so many of us darker, most twisted people end up rising to the top, not because they're better musicians, but because they're willing to sell their soul to Satan. And I really believe that the music industry and Hollywood really is there to design to keep, to destroy us. Keep us from God. And gee, that takes a real genius to figure that one out, doesn't it? Anyways, as for Nelson, in the mid-1960s, uh, successfully shed his teen idol image and emerged as a respected pioneer in country rock wave. 
that, that uh, Kenyan Ice, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstead, and the Eagles would soon ride to dizzying heights of commercial, uh, commercial success. One future member of the Eagles, Randy Spencer, uh, played the, in Nelson's Stone Canyon Band. As the name of the band would seem to imply, Nelson had moved to one of the many neighboring canyons, but he had previously lived on Mount Olympus and Laurel Canyon, and he and his band were very much a part of the early country rock scene that included bands like The Birds, Paco, The Flying Burrito Brothers, I remember that, and the first national band. Nelson was killed on New Year's Eve in 1985 in a rather unusual plane crash. According to Nelson's Wikipedia entry, quote, the original NTSB investigation long ago stated that the crash was probably due to mechanical failure, or excuse me, mechanical problems. The pilot's attempt to land in a field field after smoke filled the cabin. The examination indicated that a fire originated in the right hand side of the uh, I guess it's Craft Canyon area near the floor line. And the passengers were killed when the air, uh, aircraft struck obstacles during the forced landing. The pilots were able to escape, though, the cockpit windows and survived. Nothing unusual about that, I suppose. Shit happens. <laughs> you know, my really best, one of my good friends in high school, Ali Mahazat, he died the pile. He crashed of all places in a Walmart parking lot. Not in the east. It's quite tragic. Sad. I think it was the one of the very first guys that I grew up with that died. Yeah, a lot of potential, a lot of future. So, from the final eight years of his life, Nelson lived in a rather unique home. In 1941, swashbuckling actor. Uh, Earl Flynn had purchased an 11 and a half acre chunk of the Hollywood Hills just off Mulholland Drive and had a sprawling home built to his specifications. According to uh, Laurie Jacobson and Mark Wanamaker writing in Haunted Hollywood, the mansion featured, quote, several mysterious secret passageways and more than a few peepholes. Hmm. And a quote. The home appeared to have been designed to allow for uh, surreptitious, surreptitious, excuse me, surreptitious observation of the guest in the home's numerous bedrooms. It is claimed that Flynn incorporated the unusual design features 
so that he could satisfy his own voyeuristic impulses. Researcher slash writer Charles Heinem, however, has cast Flynn as a Western intelligence asset, and if true, then it is far more likely that the home was built not so much for Flynn's personal pleasure, but rather as a means of compromising prominent public figures. After Nelson's death, the palatial home stood vacant until a curious incident took place. Referring once again to Jacobson and Wanamaker, we find that, quote, a gang broke in and murdered a girl in the living room. Then a mysterious fire burned half the house. The rooms were torn down, and a quote, like I said, shit happens. Moving on to the next name on the list, we find that on December the, tw- the 31st of 1943, precisely 40 years after four years before the plane crash that would claim the life of Ricky Nelson, Harry John Duke, and I guess is Dukensdorf Jr., better known as John Denver. <laughs> that, that name, that man, he, that name will haunt me for the rest of my life. Was born in Roswell, New Mexico. A few years later, the town of Roswell would make a name for itself and become something of a tourist destination, but that is not really the focus here, though it should be noted that Henry John Dukensdorf Sr. might well have known a little something about that incident, given that he was a career U.S. Air Force officer assigned to Roswell Army Airfield, later renamed the Walker Air Force Base, which was likely to likely which was likely the origin of the subject that famously crashed in Roswell. Roswell, excuse me. After spending his childhood being frequently uprooted as did many of our cast of characters. Denver attended Texas Tech University in the early 1960s, and in 1964, he apparently heard the call of the Pied Piper, promptly dropped out of school and headed for L.A. Once there, he joined up with Chad Mitchell, with the Chad Mitchell Trio, the group form from which Jim McGeehan, I guess is McQueen, McQueen, excuse me, Jim McQueen had recently departed to confound the birds, not confound, co-found, but November, by November 1966, ever was front and center at the so-called, quote, riot on the Sunset Strip, in the quote, alongside folks like Peter Fonda, so, uh, Minio and a popular husband and wife duo known as Sonny and Cher. A decade later, in the later half or the latter half of the 1970s, Denver could be found working alongside a 
spooky chap by the name of Werner Erhard, Erhard creator of the so-called EST training. After graduating from training program, Denver penned a little ditty that became the organization's theme song. In 1965, Denver testified alongside our old friend Frank Zappa at the PMRC hearings. Twelve years later, in in autumn of 1997, Denver died when his self-piloted plane crashed soon after taking off from Monterey Airport. Apparently, my son's grandfather lives there. He's a wealthy, wealthy guy. He never talked to me, though. I don't think I'll have anything to do with my son's life. Anyways, I hope not. He's really not that good of a guy. But he came from a lot of old money from the East. He's the one who used to own that uh, house on the Nantucket. So, decided to sell it and go there. I guess it's the place to go if you're wealthy and you got a couple of PhDs and you really don't. Mm, you worry about things, I guess. I don't know. Um, although I, I imagine I'll have my a be game for my son going to visit there. Uh, is that uh, Monterey? Uh, isn't that where the the fish tank is? Um, isn't that where the real famous uh, aquarium is and all that? And all? I think that's yeah, it'd be cool for him to see that. So. Anyways, so there very near where the Monterey Pop Festival had been held 30 years earlier, the date of the crash, curiously enough, was one that we have stumbled across before October 12th. The next name we need to add to the list is one that has already worked its way into the narrative a time or two, Sonny Bono. As previously noted, Bono... Bono, that name seems to be quite prevalent in the music scene. What you think? <clears throat> Bono had, uh, began his Hollywood career as a lieutenant for the reclusive murderer Phil Spector. In the early 1960s, Bono hooked up with an underage Charlene Sarkisinia Lapierre, I guess, to form the duo known as Caesar and Cleo. Then, uh, then as Sonny and Cher. I didn't know that. I can't even pronounce her name. I didn't know that was from that. The pair were Phenomenon, phenomenally successful, uh, first on the Sunset Strip and later on television. Bono, of course, ultimately gave up the Hollywood life and found work in a different branch of the federal government, <laughs> the U.S. House of Representatives. Just, just think about that. He is a cynically profound statement. It probably is more true than we'll ever understand. Ultimately, he gave up the Hollywood life and founded work 
in a different branch of the federal government, the U.S. House of Representatives. On January the 5th of 1998, Sony Bono died after purportedly skiing into a tree. A lot of these guys die in these ski accidents, don't they? At the time, he occupied a seat on the House Judiciary Committee. Judiciary Committee, yes. What is that, Dan Carvey, I should say, or, or the Judiciary? Which was about to come to sudden prominence with the investigation, impeachment of President Clinton. What a death trail that freakazoid has. Knights of Malta, Georgetown train puppet. The ball was already rolling by the time Bono's death, or Bono's death, and on January 26, 1998, just three weeks after the alleged skiing incident, Clinton held his now notorious press conference. By that time, Bono's seat on the panel had been set aside for his robo-wife. Let's turn our attention now to Phil Hartman, Saturday Night Live alumnus, who was murdered in his Encino home on May 28th of 1998. That, oh, yes, that's right. Phil, Phil Hartman did die, didn't he? I can't forget all about that, Hartman. I forgot all about him. That's been a long time. Time passes. Man, it passes. Decidedly less clear is the answer to the question of who it was that actually shot and killed Hartman. <laughs> Official story holds that it was his wife, Brian, I guess it's her, Brian, Brian, who shortly thereafter shot herself with a different gun, naturally, and reportedly after she had left the house and then returned with a friend, and after the LAPD had arrived at the home. <laughs> the LAPD is a notorious history of criminality. My goodness. Returned with the home, and after the LAPD had arrived at the home, and there is a very strong possibility, however, that both Phil and his wife were murdered with the true motive for the crime covered up by trotting, uh, trotting out a tired but ever-popular murder-slash-suicide scenario. In most people's minds, of course, Phil Hartman is not associated with Laurel Canyon scene of the late 1960s and early 1970s, but... As it turns out, Hartman did indeed have substantial ties to the scene to begin with during the time that Jimi Hendrix lived in L.A. and a spacious mansion just north of the log cabin on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Hartman worked for him as a roadie. Soon after that, Phil found work as a graphic artist, and he quickly found himself much in demand by the Laurel Canyon rock royalty. Didn't know that. In addition, 
to designing album covers for both Paco and America, Hartman also designed a readily recognizable rock symbol that has endured for over 40 years. The distinctive CN, excuse me, the CSN logo of Crosby, Steel and Nash. Hartman was also the brother of record executive slash club proprietor John Hartman, who was an associate of David Giffen. Hartman had begun his career as a prodigy of Elvis handler Colonel Tom Parker, who in the 1940s had worked with cowboy actor slash log cabin owner Tom Mix. And Tom Mix, in turn, had frequently used the Spawn the Span Movie Ranch as the Spawn Movie Ranch as a filming location. That some ranch, that same ranch later became the home of Charles Manson and his girls, including Lynette Squeaky uh, Frummy, Frummy, who happened to have been a high school chum of Phil Hartman. Curiously enough, the log cabins. Guest house, also known as the Bird House, was designed and built by architect Robert Bird, who also, according to one report, designed the house at 10050 Silo Drive, where Sharon Tate and friends were murdered. At the house of 5065. Encino Avenue, where Phil Hartman was murdered. <laughs> Phil Hartman was not the only Laurel Canyon Mary who had past school's ties with Squeaky Fermi. Mark Volman, co-lead vocalist for the Turtles, knew Miss Fermi, I guess that's your pronouncer, named Fermi, from their days together in Westchester where they attended Orville Wright Junior High School. During the days of the Manson clan's stay at the now infamous Spawn Ranch, I guess I was just been Spawn Ranch, uh, there was a similarly duplicated movie set that was located right across the road its name being a small, being the small world that it is, was the Wonderland Movie Ranch. Speaking of Wonderland, let's turn our attention next to four individuals whose names will probably not be familiar to most readers: Ronald Lanius, Billy Deverell, Barbara Richardson, and Joy. Miller all died on July 1st, 1981, all by bludgeoning by by and all at the same location at 8763 Wonderland Avenue in Laurel Canyon. All were members of a gang that trafficked heavily in cocaine and occasionally in heroin. The leader of the group was Ron uh, Lanius, 
who reportedly embarked on his criminal career and established his drug connections while serving for Uncle Sam over in Vietnam, which is also where he began to build his carefully crafted reputation as a merciless blood, a cold-blooded killer at the time that he became a murderer, victim himself, Lanius Alonius was a suspect in no fewer than 27 open homicide investigations. He was also a drug supplier to various members of the Laurel Canyon aristocracy, including Chuck Negron and the Three Dog of uh, Three Dogs Night. Victim Billy Deverell was Lanius second command a victim and victim joy miller was billy's girlfriend as well the renter of the laurel canyon drug den victim uh, barbara richardson was the girlfriend of another member of the gang david lynn who conveniently wasn't was not at the home at the time of the mass murder that could well be could have uh, that could well have been due to get this page to turn. I hope it's due to the fact that Lynn was, according to various rival drug dealers, a police informant for both the Sacramento and Los Angeles police departments. He was also a member of a ultra-violent prison gang known as the Aryan Brotherhood, as is, by several accounts, Bobby Boozley Lynn, who met Lanius when the two had served time together, is alleged to have, have overdosed in 1995, though it is widely believed that he actually went into the Federal Witness Protection Program. Yeah, the Monterey uh, Bay Aquarium, which uh, yeah, maybe someday his grandfather will at least take them to that. I'm sure someday. He's got enough money. Someday he'll go visit them. Certainly not going to help me out, nor him. <laughs> oh, he is... As, as uh, my son's mother's grandmother, or let me rephrase this, my son's grandmother, which is the mother of my son's mother, said the only mistake you made, Mike, was falling in love with my daughter. Now, as I've explained before, and you think I'm making this all up, but she did go to, I believe it was, there was a called Wesley College, the Ultra Fabian Socialist Women's College, where she got two PhDs. Amazingly, it's been on friends of Marcy Captor, the congressman here. Of course, she's friends of my family, too. And amazingly, she was over in Yugoslavia. Uh, not Yugoslavia. Uh, Ukraine. And uh, what do they call that? Uh, the Peace Corps, supposedly. And came back, and then all of a sudden became real buddy buddies with the uh, Marcy Captor. Not only did they find out later, just not very shortly after that, they started meddling in the Ukraine. So, and then her his dad, of course he's in Monterey, a lot of money, 
another person with a couple PhDs and and a whole lot of money, and apparently his father was in the uh, the CIA. So <laughs> how I got into all this, I, I kid you, I'm sure, I, I swear to God, if you saw what I was living in right now, you go, what? And uh, how I got involved on in this, a kid who was raised by a traumatized Korean war vet who worked in a factory for 45 years. A blue-collar kid, how I got involved in all this, I just is beyond me. The only thing I can think of is because I'm just too damn stupid to recognize what's what in front of me to is too late. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of. It just goes on and on and on. But anyways, um, maybe things will change. And where are we at with all this? It's gone almost three hours doing all this. How far are we? How far is this period? Well, we'll finish this up only two and a half pages to go. Looks like we're going to be getting into things here that are kind of interesting. A year and a half earlier, another drug dealer with close connections to the music scene was brutally murdered in his Laurel Canyon home. Though his death was dismissed by the LAPD as a suicide. Lawrence Eugene Larry Williams was a singer, songwriter, musician, producer, and actor born on May 10th, 1935 in New Orleans, St. Louisiana, excuse me. He achieved some success in the late 50s as a solo artist before being convicted and sent to prison on drug dealing charges. And the 1960s following, by the way, this is the history of America, by the way, folks. This is really the, a big part of the history of America. Goodness gracious, and a whole lot of the home of the drug dealers, the, not the brave, the home of cults and drug dealers and perversions and Luciferianism and Satanism. We waved that flag with its 50 pentagrams on it and the blood streaking down, inspired by, by this was the East Indian Company, right? Which is the Jesuits. It's beautiful to be an American, it really is. Of course, I mean, silly now. It's no more different in a day than being um, a Brazilian, really, except we speak English. I hate to say that, and uh, it offends anybody. I don't mean to. It just, it's just reality, really. It's just our reality is, it's interesting, you know, as we read this book, it's just a small glimpse of Laurel Canyon and what Dave was focusing on. I could easily write a book about this in the town that I'm from, easily. They, they wouldn't be as famous of names, but in fact, there is a, uh, there's a really great book if you want to know about the gangsters and uh, during the Prohibition period and prior to it. Toledo, the book is called uh, Nothing Personal, Just Business, I believe is what it's called. I think it's called... Just business is what it's called. I'll look it up to make sure. I remember I read it 
when I was on the railroad, and it just blew my mind away the how much organized crime in my own town is. I'm like, oh gosh. In fact, the only reason there is uh, Toledo, Ohio, is because of organized crime. And if you realize that, was the mafia pretty much created Toledo as a hub between Cleveland, Columbus, Chicago, Indianapolis, Detroit. It was a great location. You know, they got the Lake Erie and the smuggling of alcohol and cigarettes along the over, you know, with the Lake Erie. Canada, and then all that kind of stuff. So, notorious place for 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 mafia. So, yeah, that's a lot. I'm sure I could write an interesting book myself. It would not be anything as close as her departed friend Dave McGowan, but still, I think everybody, any town that you live in, most likely there's a very sordid history. Uh, past so so trafficking drugs and prostitution William had no shortage of fans among the Laurel Canyon and the British invasion bands and of course you got to have those British invasion bands because we, as we learned we are a British colony the Beatles scored a hit with his dizzy Miss Lizzie didn't Lizzie, and doesn't that have something to do with, uh, Lizzie has something to do with Satanism in itself. And the Rolling Stones covered his, she said, yeah. All right. She was uh, well uh, documented as established Luciferian or most likely Satan and Satanic bands. Well, Rolling Stones for sure. And the Beatles were obsessed with Aleister Crowley, so that's not a good sign at all. The connections with Satanism is just profound. In the late 1960s and the early 1970s, Williams also tried his hand at acting and including the co-starring role alongside O.J. Simpson in the 1974 The Clansmen. He failed to achieve significant success in the entertainment business. His lavish lifestyle, however, indicated that he did very well for himself as a pimp and a drug trafficker. On January 7th, 1980, Williams was found dead in his Laurel Canyon home with a gunshot wound to his head and his blood splatter all over his garage walls. Though ruled a suicide, no one who was familiar with Larry's violent lifestyle was much convinced of that. In a bizarre turn of events, another blues singer named Martin Albritton appropriated his name before William's body was even cold. He continued to this day to claim that he is the real Larry Williams, even tours and performs under the name Big Larry Williams. The next name on the list is uh, Brian Cole, bass player for the Association, a Laurel Canyon folk rock band known for the hit song, Along Comes Mary and Never My Love. The association was 
performed by Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander. Kirkman had formerly played in the band with Frank Zappa, while Alexander was fresh from the, a stent in the U.S. Navy. Jerry Yester, a guitarist and keyboardist with the band, was formerly with the Modern Folk Quartet, a band managed by Zappa's management, Herb Cohen, and produced by Bird's manager, Jim Dixon. Guitarist Larry Ramos, Ramos had formerly been with the new Christie Minstrels, which also produced Gene Clark of the Birds. On June 16, 1967, Cole and his band were the first to take uh, the stage at the Monterey Pop Festival, followed by uh, such Laurel Canyon stalwarts as the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and the Mamas and the Papas. Five years later, on August 2nd, 1972, Cole was found dead in his Los Angeles home. The cause of death was reportedly a heroin overdose. Cole was one month shy of his 30th birthday at the time of his death. Another new name on the Laurel Canyon death list is Noel uh, George, the founder and creative force behind the critical acclaimed but largely obscure band known as Little Feet. Oh, yeah? Okay. George was the son of Willard H. George, a famous furrier to the Hollywood movie studios. Lowell's first foray into the music world was with a band known as The Factory, which cut some demos with a guy by the name of Frank Zappa. Frank, the, fa- uh, the Factory evolved into the fraternity of men, <laughs> though without George, who had left to serve as lead vocalist of uh, the Standells. George returned, however, to join the band in the studio for the recording of their second album by the time, as we have already learned, the fraternity of men had taken up residence in the log cabin alongside Carl Franzoni and his fellow freaks. Excuse me, not Carl, Charles Franzoni and his fellow freaks. George next joined up with Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, though his tenure there was destined to be short, a short one. Like so many other, Lowell left embittered by Zappa's dictatorial approach to making music and his condescending treatment of his bandmates after practicing company or parting company with Zappa, George formed Little Feet, a band composed mostly of musicians from the Fraternity of Men sessions. Lowell, who is credited with being a pioneer of the use of slide guitar in rock music, served as singer, songwriter, and lead guitarist of the band, which released its debut album in 1970. Though well regarded within the industry and by critics, the band's album failed to sell, and George ultimately announced the demise of the band and recorded a solo album. After playing a show on June 29, 1979, at Georgetown University, in support of the album, George was found dead 
in an Arlington, Virginia hotel room. Amazing that. Very near the Pentagon. Cause of death was said to be a massive heart attack, though George was just 34 years old of age at the time. According to Barney Hoskins, writing in Hotel California, a regular social stop-off for George was a Laurel Canyon house on Wonderland Avenue belonging to the Three Dog Night singer Danny Hunton. A drop-in den of debauchery, Hutton's house featured a bedroom with black walls and a giant fireplace. Lowell would often swing by and entertain the likes of Brian Wilson and Harry Nelson. Nelson, or I guess Nelson, Nelson, and his regular drinking buddy, John Lennon, <laughs> were frequent guests in this den of a debauchery. <laughs> the former Beatle, John Lennon, is to be sure one of the most famous names to be found on the Laurel Canyon death list. Lennon also has a distinction of being one of the few Laurel Canyon alumni whose cause of death is acknowledged to have been been homicide. The ex-Beatle, of course, never lived in the canyon, but he was a fixture on the Sunset Strip and at various Laurel Canyon hangouts, frequently in the company of Harry Nielsen. And it's N-I-L-S-S-O-N. Lennon was as a fairly well-known murdered on December 8th, 1980, in front of the New York Dakota apartments, which had been portrayed by filmmaker Roman Polanski and his film Rosemary's Baby as a den of satanic cult activity. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? And of course, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? It just keeps piling on and piling. I mean, this, 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 this is Dave McGowan. He the guy didn't even believe in God. He's a self-professed agnostic atheist. He didn't want anything to do with God. And he, he could put the pieces together. Satan over, Satan over and over again, man. These guys are all dabbling in Satanism. Our whole life, all these rock musicians, all these guys, every single one of them ever made it that had influenced your lives, that polluted our minds, all and a bunch of Satanists. Well, I can't say all, but the ones that really mattered were a bunch of Satanists. And um, it just goes on and on and on. Eight years later, let's see, where were we at back? Oh, yeah. Uh, precisely three weeks after Lennon's death, Tim Hardin, Kenyanite folks musician, close associate to Frank Zappa, one time tenant in Lenny Bruce's Laurel Canyon adjacent home and former United States Marine died of a reported heroin and morphine overdose in Los Angeles. At the time of his death on December 29th, 1980, Hardin was just 39 years old, one year younger than Lennon. Eight years later, on July 18th, 1988, singer-songwriter, keyboardist Christy 
Pufkin, better known as Nico, died of a reported cerebral hemorrhage in Ibiza, Spain. Ibiza, Spain. Under unusual circumstances, after achievements, achieving some level of fame as a vocalist with the Velvet Underground, Nico had left the Warhol stable and migrated west to Laurel Canyon, where she formed a bond with then the well-known singer-songwriter named Jackson Brown, who contributed a few songs to Nico's 1967 debut album, Chelsea Girl. The title was derived from New York's Chelsea Hotel, which, by the way, I stayed, and I was the only straight guy in the whole freaking neighborhood. I didn't know how gay it was. I had no idea. I never probably never would have went. But I went there, and I stayed there. This is before everything happened, and the big flood, them changing everything over. Um, where Devin Wilson took a dive and where the person's persona of John Train murdered the persona of Phil Oaks. I guess that's right. So anyways, one thing that, you know, I don't know how much of it is the military industrial complex and, uh, and, That's really was involved in all this, but you know when you think about it, it seems quite common that people that know each other from high school and college end up supporting each other. So, at the head of it, sure, I'm sure that the government was involved with it. Oh my gosh, my butt was involved with it, allowed it, and funded it, and backed it up, and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. There's some really strange connections. And one thing's for certain, Dave's a good researcher, so. But the same token, I just think about it in my own life, and, you know, the people are well-connected to help each other to find jobs. And, you know, a lot of the lower class, you know, how many people in this country have been in the military and have uh, people in the merit of the military? Well, you know, it's a hell of a lot more common than we maybe realize. Saying that, that doesn't mean that what uh, Dave was talking about is not true. There certainly is some strange coincidences. And certainly guys like Jim Morrison didn't make it because of their great talent. No. It's clear when you think about it, when I think about it. So you create, you create a person like Jim Morrison. You figure out where your strengths are. This is the Beatles, what happened to the Beatles happened to them and the Stones and all that. And you think, wow, these guys have their real original uh, creative force. They really have their uh, unique styles themselves. And, you know, in the day they did, but in order to make it work, they had to talented people around them and somebody had to tap into that. Somebody had to have the resources, drive, and understand you do that. What I'm trying to say is, the odds are, on his own, Jim Morrison never could have been the icon of the, of the you know, rock and roll in the late 60s and early 70s, unless he had a lot of help. Because he really wasn't that great. He's a very interesting singer, but he wasn't, he didn't know how to write music, and he wasn't a very, his singing wasn't really diverse. Is very unique, but you got to understand 
with recording techniques, even back then, you can make the worst of voices sound cool on vinyl. <laughs> you can. <laughs> I know this for myself. I mean, I'm a terrible singer, and I wrote lots of songs that I have recorded. So, in tweaking, uh, you know, the reverb and ex- the chorus and etc. and all that, and guy, you guy could sound a little bit of echo here and there, and then guy could sound a lot more than he actually is. So. I think uh, definitely there's definitely Governor was behind the Laurel Canyon movement. And uh, one can only speculate about a lot of the other things. But, you know, as far as the drug dealing goes and the city of, uh, of angels, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, anybody's, you know, it's just been one book after another. I mean, um, uh, what is it? Jack Kerouac, of course, he's not necessarily the greatest the sources of information himself. He was a drug dealer and a pervert and all sorts of things. But on the road, talks about the city of love, to, you know, the, uh, that city of angels. And uh, even back in the 1950s, it was a basket case. And um, just like Toledo was. There it is. Except you just have more famous people because of Hollywood. Um, anyways, try to do. Uh, I'll try to do part four tomorrow night. Hopefully, uh, we'll be having an interview. Maybe I should check my email before I end this and see about David Weiss. And hopefully, he's guys. He's got. Uh, I'll have to get him back to the computer and remember about. Uh, uh, I think it's something about the rabbit hole.com <laughs> going down the rabbit hole.com. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you know much about, uh, you're, you're still there. Uh, Gordo, do you know much about Dave Weiss? Have you heard of him before? Have you done any kind of research on that or know anything about him and his background? Um, I just know it through Mark Sargent and, uh, Jaronism um, and those guys in the Flat Earth movement. But anyways, uh, deep inside the rabbit hole.com. And I know he's kind of been this guy who's been floating with all these other guys like the Health Ranger, Mike Adams, and all these kind of uh, different kind of talk shows. And I, I don't know. It'd be really interesting because uh, like Visigoth is, you know, he's got, you know, did a lot of research on 9 11 himself. Get these two guys together on Saturday. Well, it probably never happened. This probably it will never go for it. I'm sure that he probably doesn't want anything to do with any of this stuff anymore. But to get these two guys together, I mean, if you check it out, it's uh, deep inside the rabbit hole dot com, and uh, got some good insights, man. And he really he goes into a lot of the. The hoaxes, you know, uh, the Boston bombing thing. The uh, but he does a really good job on the um, 9/11. Really like to talk to him, and so he's got like this homepage, and then the first one is 9/11 intro, 9/11 Pentagon, 9/11 PA, 9/11 no planes, 9/11 uh, mind control, 9/11 directed energy. Um, he goes in quite a bit. I think he'd be a very interesting uh, and. Of course, he sees things just a little different than maybe uh, Visigoth does, especially about what happened in Pennsylvania. But 
it would be interesting to have two guys who spend, you know, all this time researching it. Because I'd be honestly, I, I spend my fair share of time researching nine eleven, but not enough to concern myself. One of the guys who are experts at it. Yeah, I never heard of him. Yeah. I know, you know, I would consider myself one of those guys who spent countless hours, you know, really researching the data, really, you know, like I'm not even worthy of being considered a researcher. I'm just a guy and, and uh, his own little show, you know, sharing his journey with people. I would not concern, concern myself uh, qualified. And in other words, I, I don't see ever, uh, not in the near future at least, uh, somebody calling up Michael Adams from nothingbutthetruth.com to interview me <laughs> about my expertise on any other. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. So it would be fascinating if Biz and, and Dave were willing to get together and have a a conversation, you know what I mean? You know, guys who really have spent the, uh, the time and know the minutia, the details, and can really have an in-depth conversation. So he's worth checking out. Um, he said he would come on the show Saturday. Yeah, he, he, maybe he would. You're right. And it's it's and uh, yeah, it's just you know it's it's more of a selfish thing on my part, but it's it's one of those you know sick fantasies I have, I guess. Hell, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like you know when I wanted you and him to be on the show together because like I mean you got you guys bounce off each other and have uh, uniquely intelligent conversations that you're just not going to find anywhere else in life. Um, and just like um, him and David, that's the reason why I reached out to Viz to be with Dave is because uh, those guys bounced off well with each other, you know what I mean? And uh, why Rob it, why Rob people are listening to Mike Adams mentioned here you know, something much better, so and let's see what's going on. Andrew, interesting comparison Roman Catholicism yeah, I haven't heard anything from him yet, but you're talking about it. So sometimes Saturday we do a show, so it should be interesting. Um, he's got some, you know, he's one of those guys supposedly that you know um, was in New York when it happened. So and he's one of those guys that you know he really believes people died. So he's he's uh, he says he's, he doesn't believe the number, the government the officials number of the. But he believes there is quite a few people who died, and he has uh, at least two friends. Uh, their family say they died, but the, the very minimum they're missing. And but I like what his take is about things, about the whole thing, about uh, Judy Woodward and uh, his approach and his whole understanding, recognizing that the buildings actually went to turn to dust. So it should be interesting to hear what he has to say. Because He was there. He spent a lot of time there. He's been motivated to do it. Apparently, that day he was supposed to uh, leave to come to Ohio, but uh, he couldn't leave New York City because obviously it was going on on 9/11. So uh, you hear a lot of people. A lot of people say they were there that day. Maybe they were. I don't know. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of people in New York. A lot of interesting personalities. Maybe he's full of crap. I don't know. I'm gonna put my trust in this because I think it's pretty interesting. So he is a new ager. He's not. A, he's not. 
well, he's not Christian, biblical Christian, but that doesn't mean you can't have an intelligent conversation with a New Ager about a certain topic so, or two. So, and there's no point in uh, saying no to it. So, but anyways, hey, Gordo, it was great. Thank you for you sharing your time with me. I want to try to get to bed earlier tonight. Still have my uh, son, and uh, I want to try to give him some quality time because I won't have it over the weekend. So. Then I haven't just figured out yet when uh, Dave hasn't got back to me yet. Of course, you know, it's Thanksgiving, so I'm not pushing it. So. But he did respond to me on Thanksgiving, so we'll see what happens. So. I don't know. We'll see if he can tolerate a guy like me. So, yeah, good night, brother. Good night, Carl. So, I'm not easy to tolerate myself, so i got a lot of issues. So, I understand completely, so... <laughs> he takes you person to listen to me and to follow my show. So, all right, with that, God bless and take care. Hopefully, we'll be talking tomorrow. God willing. So, with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.